0: Father, the great reality of a new heart is just that, to delight in you and to delight in Christ, to desire to turn away from all that dishonors you and to turn toward all that brings you pleasure. As Paul said himself, it's a reflection of that new heart, that he does all things to please you, the one whom we will stand before one day and to give an account for our lives and we want it to be one that would bring pleasure to you, to bring you honor and to bring you glory. And yet we know that we do this not on our own, that we do it by the ongoing work of the glory and blessing of the new covenant, the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us, to continually grant us to hear your voice in Scripture and to hear rightly and to desire to follow our good shepherd so produce this in us, Lord, daily as we spend time with you and use this, our corporate gathering and our together sitting under the ministry of your word uh, to encourage us yet again to leave this place and to live for our great Savior and our great and glorious God. Be our teacher, Holy Spirit, as we open your word and we pray this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. We are going to complete our look at this very significant portion of Scripture this morning. We'll be focusing primarily on verse 27. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And as we've noted at the beginning of this and throughout, this is God's divine timetable For his plans and his purpose for the nation of Israel. And as we've noted as well, that God's plans and purposes for the nation of Israel coincide with his plans and purposes for the world. So his wrapping up his plans for Israel coincide with his wrapping up his plans for this present age. In other words, it is a significant uh, framework for us to understand the events of history. And certainly that includes what many of us see and have been made aware of even in the last few days, that we live in a time, in a time that has been going on now for generations or at least decades, I mean, uh, where the nation of Israel stands in large part uh, in hostility or I should say, nation, a large part of the world stands in hostility to the nation of Israel. She is always fighting for her life. She is always under the threat of those who want to destroy her, and yet she is a nation that stands according to the purposes of God. She stands among the nations, and we'll come back to this later. And it is by understanding or by understanding the revelation of God and his purposes and his covenants and his intentions for the world that we can make sense of events that we see as they're happening around us. Not in all of the details, but at least in the big picture of what God is doing among the nations. And Daniel 9 takes us right into the heart of that. So what I want to do this morning is read the passage, and then I want to briefly review where we've been and then bring that to a head in his final statement in Daniel 9, chapter 27, of what is sometimes known as the 70th week. So read with me, beginning in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, and then um, we'll swing back around and look at it more closely. So verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and to discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And such is the prophecy of the 70 weeks that was given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel. Now, Trish informed me yesterday, or yes, Saturday, that it would be helpful to kind of review with a chart where we've been so far. That sometimes with dates and the different things, it can get a little confusing. So while in my mind it's exceptionally clear... it may not always be that way to everyone else. So what I've done here is uh, put a little chart. I, hopefully you can read that. Just to be a, a brief snapshot of where we've been and how to follow um, this passage here by given to us uh, by God. So in verse 24, we noted that verse 24 is the summary of God's, the end of God's plan. The summary of all of what he's doing, the completion of it is are these promises that he will bring about to the nation of Israel. So to finish the transgression, make an end to sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the holy place. This is going to come about at the second coming of Christ when he establishes his kingdom on earth after the completion of the 70 weeks. After the completion of the 70 weeks. Verse 25, he notes the issuing of a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Seven weeks are set apart. Forty-nine years. We argued that the beginning of that decree, that decree is the decree of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in four forty-five BC. In verse twenty-six. He says after 62 weeks, this is the 62 weeks following that seven-year period, which we noted was probably the completion of the work of Nehemiah, and the end and after the, last, and the end of the last writing prophet Malachi, and so it was probably the completion of that 49 weeks. And then picking up the next 62 weeks, he says until uh, the, the, the Messiah will be cut off, at the end of that 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And again, we argue there that this is the crucifixion of Christ, Uh, We spent some detail on that. The precise time of 483 years, 49 plus 34 prophetic years, 360 days, coincided with this, the coming of Christ, his entrance into Jerusalem, and his being cut off where he has nothing. That is, he seemed to have nothing after his death. And then, again, in verse 26, in the middle, it says, The people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D., and we spent time... ...on these last two parts last week and went to the, gospel of the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21... ...where Jesus anticipates this very time. It says, the people of the prince who are to come will destroy the city of the sanctuary... ...and then even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And we noted there that this is an undisclosed time period described by Jesus... ...as until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's Luke, chapter 21, verse 24... Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So at the end of that period, he marks out a distinct portion of time that is characterized as a time of the Gentiles. And you see there also as a part of that quote, this is in also what is uh, described by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans in Romans 11 that there is a time of the Gentiles. There is a point in which God will end his focus on the Gentile nation and turn again to the nation of Israel. Because the promises and the covenants of God are irrevocable. That's in Romans 11. We've spent time on that in the past. And so that brings us then up to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now again, as we noted, and it was there in the last note, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, ends merely with this statement that gives a picture of the character of the time. There's no definite marker at the end of verse 26 as there was uh, previously with the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. It's just an open-ended period of time. It's ongoing. It's going to be marked essentially by opposition to the Jews and particularly to Israel by hostility towards them, uh, by opposition, by their place in the world, is going to be one that's going to be primarily marked by rejection, by hostility. And then we come to verse 27. And he says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And so out of nowhere, it seems, he makes this statement, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And with this statement, he sets off the final week of the 70 weeks by itself, and this is known then as the 70th week of Daniel. It is a period of seven years, a period of seven years that God has marked off to wrap up his intentions for the nation of Israel, and as I noted, for the world. Now, how are we to understand this? In order to answer this, there are two questions that must uh, that emerge out that we would want to be clear on. The first is this, when do these final events happen? And number two, who is the he? Is it the Messiah or is it the prince to come? And are those the same people? Well, we've already begun to address that when we were back in verse 26. But here we need to pick it up again and identify who is the he. And there are, well, we'll come to that. So first of all, let's address the first question. When do these final events happen? When do these final events happen? There is no definite marker in terms of a time period marked out as he did before. Again, when he says the 62 weeks will end, well, the, 70, the 69 weeks will begin with the issuing of a decree and end at, with the Messiah being cut off, and then it'll, after that will be the destruction of the city. And yet he gives no specific marker here in terms of a a time only to say that one is going to arise and there is going to be a covenant that is made. So one big point to observe here is that there is an undisclosed period of time before the end of verse 26 and the beginning of verse 27. There is a gap. We go immediately from desolations are determined to one who will make a covenant. He will make a covenant. And it is this covenant that marks off, again, this last seven years of the 70 weeks. It is identifiable by this event. This event of a covenant being made. The second observation here, just briefly, is that this covenant takes place after the crucifixion and after the destruction of Jerusalem. So whatever... Is happening. it has to be after those events. This is going to be significant later. It has to be after a period of time where he simply describes it as desolations are determined and wars will be also a mark of this time. And one third observation, just up front, is that this prophecy is focused on God's will for the nation of Israel. And again, I've already said this, but let me say it again. Right now then, God's attention is not primarily on the nation of Israel. Again, that's the many arguments, but the argument of Paul in Romans chapter 9 through 11, it is a focus on the Gentile nations. It is on the Gentile nations. And yet, here, this event is going to be marked by a focus again on the nation of Israel, which is not in our current and present time. Now, there was no need to mention the extensive gap between verse 26 and verse 27 because that would be unfolded in the course of history and further revelation after the coming of Christ and after the advancement of the gospel and the establishment of the church. So secondly then, a question then is, Who is the? So when is this time period? Well, it's a time period. That is sometime in the future that will be marked by the event of a covenant being made with Israel by an individual. Secondly, then, who is this individual? It says in verse twenty-seven, and he will make a firm covenant. Now, some, and we've, for those hopefully can remember this, who we've talked about, preterists who believe that all the events of Revelation and others were fulfilled in seventy A.D., or all millennialists, many of which who are all uh, hold then that we're already in the millennial. That was started at the first coming of Christ. And so both of those camps take this to be Christ, that it's Christ here. Christ is making a covenant, that somehow this fits into the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ. Uh, But there are some problems with that. First of all, just in terms of grammatical, and we won't be technical here, but the he is what? It's a pronoun. And the pronoun and the common uses of language in, in Hebrew and Greek and ours as well, we understand this, uh, is typically attached to the nearest antecedent. So the, the nearest named person or thing or whatever, that would be the subject of the he. That would be define it. Who is the he here? Well, the nearest antecedent is the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come. So the identity of the prince who is to come in verse 26 is the he here of verse 27. And notice, as we did before in verse 26, he doesn't say the prince who is to come will destroy the city. He says the people of the prince who is to come who will destroy the city. And here, then, is the he, the identification of that prince, which clearly cannot be Christ by the mere fact that his people, back in verse 26, are instruments of destruction. Moreover, it requires, then, That this He be the Prince who is to come, by the fact that the Prince who is to come is left undefined. And He needs some kind of definition. And here, that is provided by the angel Gabriel. Secondly, there is no record of Christ making any such covenant. There's no record of Christ making any such covenant. In the Gospels, the only covenant that is mentioned in the ministry of Christ is Luke twenty-two twenty, the the New Covenant, and Hebrews thirteen twenty, the Eternal Covenant by the Blood of Christ, which is also a reference to the New Covenant. There's no seven-year covenant. There's no seven-year period that the middle of which Christ is cut off, which is another argument to those who want to identify by Christ, that the grain offerings and the other sacrifices stop because Christ atoned for sin and there was no needed point of that, which makes... No, uh, which gives no uh, identification in the Gospels of when that supposed seven-year period started and what would be the three-and-a-half years after that. So in other words, there's no covenant, there's no corresponding covenant or events in the life of Christ that bring any uh, understanding to this. And nothing, again, here about this covenant as it's described in verse 27 fits the life of Christ. So in other words, and I'll just say this plainly, that in order to make this Christ, or a covenant of Christ, you have to ignore the details in the actual language of the text and impose something else upon it. You have to impose something else upon it that does not come out of the text itself. And certainly, although I'm not going to go through it, that's exactly what happens in the, when those statements are defended. So who is the he? The he here, then, is the prince who is to come. It is a figure who is to appear on the human stage. And because he's already been identified or his people have already been identified as those who bring destruction on the city and the sanctuary. And so we noted that is Jerusalem and uh, the city of uh, the temple itself. That's what was destroyed in 70 A.D., anticipated again by Christ. Then this prince who is to come is one who is in hostility or in opposition to the people of God, to the people of God. That's a defining mark of, of who he is and of his character. He is one who opposes the covenant nation of Israel. Now because of this, then, it makes the opening statement of verse 27 all the more striking. He, who is opposed to the people of God, whose people are marked by the destruction of the city and the sanctuary, is now making a covenant, is now making a covenant with these same people. So before focusing on the identity of the prince, which is where I want to end, let's consider first the nature of this firm covenant. The nature of this firm covenant. What is this firm covenant with the many for one week? Well, again, let's begin by making some observations. First of all, it presupposes both the existence of the nation of Israel as a sovereign political entity and the presence of the temple in which to make sacrifices. Now, again, I want you to note the distinction in verse 26, the city and the sanctuary have been destroyed. At the end of verse 26, after that destruction, there's wars and desolations that are continuing. And yet here in verse 27, we actually have a nation. We actually have sacrifices. We actually have a temple. We actually have a covenant being made with them. This is something that's yet future. This is a reality. Just looking at it from the broad picture of world history, That was possible, as you well know, only since 1948, following the atrocities of World War II. Israel was granted her land and sovereignty as a nation. And I would point out that that was the first time that Israel had sovereignty as a nation and not being under the domination of another nation since the exile in 586 B.C. First time. And yet in 1948, this was a reality for the nation of Israel. And it's worthy to note that those who take and understand a futuristic nature of Daniel 9 and of Revelation anticipated this more than a century, over a hundred years before it took place. That Israel would be a nation and that these events would come about. So that's the first observation. Second observation is the covenant he will make with the nation of Israel, who is the many here, means that he who is making this covenant is in some position of political prominence that allows him on the world stage to fulfill this important role. He's making a covenant. He's singled out as an individual who's bringing about this very significant event, which is identified here as a covenant. Observe as well that this covenant is with the many, that is with Israel, for one week. For one week. Now this could be saying that it is a covenant that is on its face for one week. In other words, the one making this covenant is saying, I'm making a seven-year covenant. It could also be a reference to a covenant for one week simply from, the mind, from God's perspective. In other words, God knows the amount of time and so it's a covenant that was made from a human perspective indefinitely. But for God's perspective, it was one that is, fits within his final seven years for the nation of Israel. And he knows in the middle of that, it's going to be uh, broken. You could take it either way. I would take it in the latter way, uh, since it is uh, uh, given uh, by established decree of God. As a matter of fact, he says that, one that is decreed when he talks about the destruction. Uh, but in either case... It is here identified as a covenant for one week, a covenant for one week, a definite period of time. And it is implicit in this covenant that it is a covenant that will bring about a situation in which Israel will reinstitute or institute sacrifices and grain offerings. Sacrifices and grain offerings. That means then that this firm covenant. Has something to do with an agreement of peace. And that's also indicated by the conditions in which this covenant, out of which this covenant arises. What are the conditions? Again, desolations are determined, hostility and opposition against the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Now this comes, this one arises on the world stage who has political prominence, influence, and position who is making a covenant, this covenant is in some measure a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel that will allow them then to re-establish these parts of their worship, their cultic worship, their religious worship. Again, the world scene is that there is hostility against the nation of Israel. However, this scenario, again, is not difficult to imagine. There's been constant hostility toward the nation of Israel since she became a sovereign nation In 1948, we noted this just briefly last week, Jerusalem has been overtaken by the Muslims, it's been the Crusaders, it's been in constant conflict in in Jerusalem itself. And then since 1948, that kind of conflict has only increased and there has been hostility. The Palestinian nations have desired nothing more than to wipe Israel off the face of the map, explicitly so. In fact, this was attempted in 1967 during the Six-Day War, and you had the massive nations of Egypt and Jordan who were far superior in size and numbers, who sought to destroy Israel, an occupier and usurper of their land as they see it, and yet God preserved the nation in the most amazing way. And Israel not only ended up victorious, but gaining land on the West Banks, Golan Heights, the Western Wall, and some renewed access into Jerusalem, which is what they have now. So these are significant events. This created, again, though, however, a situation of constant friction between Israel and many of the Middle Eastern nations, including other nations as well, such as Russia, whose sole desire is to get rid of Israel. And again, that's what we see in the news. It's not surprising if we understand This that's being said by Daniel and the rest and by Jesus in the New Testament. Now, just as a footnote here, and we're going to get in more to this next uh, week, but it's probably be considered by the Jews in some sense. Well, it will be considered by the Jews initially as a victory for peace. Peace is then to be the hallmark of this event. if you'll remember, when we looked at the first horse in Revelation that launched us coming back to Daniel chapter 9, the white horse and its rider most likely represents that he is a conqueror and he is conquering with the bow, not with the sword, but without bloodshed. That he is one who is conquering and supposedly gaining this political prestige and power by increasing his authority, but without bloodshed and by brokering peace. It's even possible that this is a part of the initiation, the initial part of what the Jews are anticipating, the present Jews, unbelieving Jews, when they, as they're still looking for their Messiah, as they still have their messianic anticipations. It's even likely that they will link their renewed sacrifice as a sign of his imminent appearing, their Messiah's imminent appearing. This is why Jesus warned to the Jews in those last days, if someone says, I am the Christ, you need to don't go after them, and so forth, and if they're found in the inner room. So in summary, at least just in this first part, there is a coming world leader who will arise from among the nations to position a position of political prominence. A significant mark of his political influence will be to barter some kind of peace agreement with Israel and hostile nations, allowing the Jewish people to rebuild the temple structure and reinstitute some form of Old Testament sacrifices. So he will make a firm covenant with the many in one, for, one week, for one week. However, this covenant will be a covenant of deception. It will be a covenant of deception. Look at what he says next. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and to grain offerings. And he will be marked then by his subsequent actions as establishing an abomination, an abomination in the temple area. Now again, there's no way to fit any of this language or these events into the ministry of Christ, it simply is not possible. But I, I mention that because that is how some vehemently want to argue it. There's no way to fit these events in, this covenant. So, what is then this covenant of deception? What is this covenant of deception? It's one in which it begins with the, uh, the intention of peace or the facade of peace, but it has behind it the intention to destroy And that's why it was one that was made in deception. Made in deception. Look at what he says. He says then, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and to grain offerings. A stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And he will then, on the wing of abominations, be one who makes desolate. So what started off as... Uh, the assumption of peace is turned into war and to destruction. And we would note this kind of activity among political leaders and in war is not unheard of within the, the, his- the, the history of the world. In our most recent uh, memory would be that of Adolf Hitler. If you'll remember before the beginning of the war, what was he? He was bartering for peace. Remember famously Nettleton, peace in our time? Coming back after a conference with Hitler and other world leaders, he was one who was assaging the fears, as it were, of the nation's leaders so that he could really move forward and advance his intention of taking over essentially Europe and the world and eventually even of destroying the Jews, which uh, which was also a part of his intentions. So we're not unfamiliar with this kind of tactic. He will be marked then by putting an end to the sacrifice and grain offering and then establishing an abomination. He'll be marked then by blasphemies. What are these abominations? Well, the abomination must be seen in relation to the nation of Israel. It is some blasphemous symbol of idolatry and false worship. That's what an abomination is in the mind of a Jew, something that opposes God, something that sets itself up in the place of God that requires affection and allegiance in the place of God, worship in the place of God. That it will be the mark, then, of these abominations, and it will be attended with violence. Now, there is a precursor to this individual in the name of an historical figure, some of you will be familiar with it, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a ruler who rose out of the Greek nation. Well, you remember Alexander the Great, He essentially Hellenized that portion of the world. He died in early death. All of this, we'll come back to at another time. He died in early death. His kingdom was split up before four generals, and it was out of one of those territories given to the four generals that arose this other leader, this leader known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if you're in the book of Daniel, we're not going to, again, spend a lot of time on this, but I want to just point it out to you. This particular leader is introduced to us in chapter 8, in chapter 8. And actually beginning in chapter 9, it says, Out of one of them, who is the one of them? Well, as I already noted, out of one of them, the four conspicuous horns in verse 8, those were the four generals out of which the, the kingdom, essentially, of Alexander the Great was divided. And out of one of them, that's the them, came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, that is, of Jerusalem. It grew up of the host of heaven and caused some of the host of some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of hosts, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. This says, and on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, that is this ruler, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one that said, Uh, To that particular one who was speaker, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply and the transgression cause horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said for me, 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Jump over to chapter 11. This one is picked up again in verse. Well, we'll begin in verse 30. Well, verse 31. And I'm going to note here, I'm just mentioning this in brief here. When we get to Revelation 13, we'll come back and work out through the details of this. But here I just want you to see the big picture. He says, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary forces, do away with the regular sacrifice. They'll set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he'll turn godless to godlessness. Those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength. He's referring here to what historically is known as the Maccabean Revolt that was in response to these atrocious actions by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. If you jump down to verse 36, then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He'll prosper until the indignation is finished, one that is decreed. He'll show no regard for the god of his fathers, the desire of women And so forth. Instead, he'll honor a god of fortresses, a god his fathers did not know, and on it goes. So, this leader is a leader who arises, and what's important to note here, who arises out of the vestiges of the Grecian Empire that was spearheaded by Alexander the Great. This is not yet the Antichrist who will come out of the coalition of Roman nations, which we'll come back to in just a sec out of Daniel chapter 7. And yet, he will commit atrocities and actions that anticipate one who is going to come after him. He will persecute the Jews. He will desecrate the temple. He will demand honor and homage from the people. He will establish, he will try to reorient the temple to be a place of worship of Zeus. He will replace the altar to God with a pagan altar in which sacrifices are made to the god of his fathers this is all attested to in the the uh, account of Antiochus epiphanes however this can't be the fulfillment of daniel chapter 9 verse 27 for a few solid reasons one is already noted that he arises this figure of daniel chapter 8 out of greece The one who's going to rise, the little horn we're going to mention in a bit, out of Daniel chapter 7, is not out of Greece, but is out of a coalition of ten nations that are identified with the revived Roman Empire, the ten toes of the statue that Daniel saw in chapter 2. Secondly, Jesus still speaks of this person as yet future in his earthly ministry. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, that Jesus says this as he's describing, you don't have to turn there as he's describing these uh, final events, he says in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. This is long after the events of Antiochus Epiphanes. This figure is still anticipated. So it can't be him. Paul anticipates as well, a coming individual associated with apostasy who will set himself up in the temple of God and demand worship in an unprecedented way. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no one deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes fir- first. The man of lawlessness has revealed. The son of destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself. above every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Displaying himself as being God. And if you're. Paying attention, and you know that that's precisely what is anticipated of this one who will arise, identified as the beast, in Revelation 13, in which all of the world will be made to worship the image of the beast in Revelation 13, verse 15. So, this individual of 927 is yet to come, though there is a precursor in the person of Antiochus Epiphanes IV but yet he wasn't the completion. There's still one to come, and there's still greater destruction and horrors to come. And so he says in verse 27, he's going to make desolate, this one. He's going to also be marked by great abominations, blasphemy, false worship. He's going to be marked by violence and turning against the people of God. He's going to make desolate. He's going to bring out and increase destruction, and yet it is a time that has been decreed by God. Again, a destruction, one that has been decreed. Now, then, who is this person? Who is this person? Who is this prince or this ruler? Well, we would know him as the Antichrist. And he was anticipated a bit earlier. Now, if you look just briefly, and again, we're doing a big flyover here to get the big picture. In months down the road, we'll come back in more detail. But I want to just give you the big picture here. Go back, if you're in Daniel, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And after he gives an account of these visions of the nations that will arise, he mentions at the end of that in verse 8, again, imagery that's picked up in Revelation chapter 13. But here he mentions, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Again, is distinct from the horn in Daniel chapter 8, were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Great boast. In fact, it is this arrogance that is the mark of this particular leader, this arrogance against God. If you look at verse 11, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. If you jump down a little later in the chapter to verse 25, he will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he'll intend to make alteration in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. He'll make alterations in the law and so forth. Time, times, and half a times identifies three and a half years. Three and a half years. Now, what I want you to see here, uh, just as we kind of, again, give the big picture of how precisely the events of this little horn and the identification of this little horn fit with the anticipation of the future ministry and events of the Antichrist that are laid out for us in the New Testament. Now, again, this is going to be a big flyover. First, note this. The timing of deception and destruction that will come three and a half years into his rise. That becomes important. He specifically noted in Daniel 9.27 that this week period that is determined is marked by a change in which all of these atrocities will come about three and a half years after the covenant. Now that's significant and that these atrocities will continue for another three and a half years. Now, why is that important? Because this is precisely what is repeated throughout Daniel and in the Gospels and in Revelation in anticipation of this. So, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up till the end time. Many will be purged, purified, wicked will act wickedly, so forth. Verse 11, and from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Three and a half years. Three and a half years, 42 months. We see the same thing we noted in Revelation chapter 11, anticipating this coming one. He says in Revelation chapter 2, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months, three and a half years. We see the same thing repeated in 12 chapter 6, Revelation 12, 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. We see it again in verse 6 of Revelation 13. And he opened, up, uh, he opened up his mouth in verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for how long? Forty-two months was given to him three and a half years. In other words, this is the consistent pattern in anticipation of this future event. Now, who decreed the 42 months? It wasn't the leader himself. He didn't say, I'm only going to do this for 42 months. It was decreed by God. God gave him that authority for 32 months. Why? Because that's what he anticipated here in verse 27. That is the time period that has been decreed for him. So first thing to notice is that the timing and destruction that comes with this future leader accords with the events of this anticipated uh, person at the end of the age. Second. Note the unprecedented nature of both his blasphemy within the context of his worldwide political authority and prominence. The blasphemy of this one who is to come is not going to be limited to the nation of Israel, but in Revelation chapter 13 is going to impose that worship on the entire world, whom also he will control economically to buy and to sell and so forth. Not merely the nation of Israel, although that is going to be a center part, but it is going to be an influence that he has on the world in cohesion with the other ten nations. Antiochus Epiphyses never had that. He didn't. he didn't. He didn't compel that upon Egypt. He didn't compel that upon any of the other nations. But this one who is coming will. So he'll be marked by the unprecedented nature and influence of this blasphemy, which will extend to other nations. Thirdly, the completeness of his destruction that corresponds to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. In each of these cases where this future ruler is identified, the end of his destruction is marked by this event, the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. Let's look at that pattern. Again, we're going to just do a fly-through here. Daniel chapter 7, we have the horn that arises— He speaks out blasphemous words. Then we have this vision of Daniel into the throne room of God, in which there are angels attending God. There's burning fire, he says. It's wheels burning fire in chapter 9, river of fire flowing in chapter 10. And then we are introduced in the midst of the scene again to this one with boastful words who was speaking out against God. And what it says, I kept looking, and the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given with burning fire. For the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And then we have this great vision of the Son of Man being presented before God, the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom. And then we get into some more detail at the end. And after he made... uh, these changes and the alterations and times in the law, verse 25 of seven, given into his hand for a time and time and half a time. And then there is judgment. His dominion is taken away. He's annihilated and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms of the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. That's the establishment of the kingdom. That's the coming of Christ. This is, in fact, exactly what was anticipated in the original vision given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, verse forty-four. In those days, the kings of the uh, the God of Heaven will set up a kingdom, or in those days of the kings, the God of Heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself. Will endure, and as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God who has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and worthy. In other words, this pattern is established in Daniel and it's repeated again throughout the New Testament at the appearing of Christ. Matthew 24 What are going to be the signs of your coming? Well, the war, the death. Those kind of false Christ who are rising up. And then in verse 15, in the midst of all this, the abomination of desolations who is established, who will have great deception, his appearing of the destruction that will come with him, he says in verse 21, will be so great that it has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or ever will. As great as the destruction of Jerusalem was in 70 AD, it was not the worst that was ever, had ever been or ever was after it. This is a destruction that's coming that is unique. It is alone in its significance. So great, he says in verse 22, is the deception of this time that even the elect in those days would have been deceived if God had not cut those days short. When will it be over? Well, in Matthew 24 and verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear, and he's going to come in great glory. The coming of Christ. The coming of Christ. We see the exact same pattern in this mention again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to oppose and exalt himself. He's going to bring out the greatest blasphemies. And then what's going to happen? Verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Again, he rises, abomination. He's destroyed at the end of the time by the appearing of Christ. We see the exact same thing in the book of Revelation. He's going to arise in verse the high, the climactic uh, the account of that rise is in Revelation thirteen. He's allowed to have that reign as we already noted for forty two months. And what's going to happen at the end of that reign? Revelation nineteen. Christ is going to come on the white horse with the saints, and he's going to destroy the beast and the false prophet, and they will be seized and they will be thrown into a lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. What I simply want you to note here is the constant pattern. One who is coming, one whose rise will be marked by great destruction against the people of Israel, the height of blasphemy, the uniqueness in its time of horror that is going to come to an end at the end of three and a half years that will come to an end by the appearing of Christ physically in his glory from heaven to destroy them and to establish a kingdom. Now, that's just the pattern. Everywhere you go, you're going to see that same pattern. After this point, after the completion of this 70th week, at the end of this pattern will come about then the promises of verse 24. The transgression will be finished. Sin will be made an end of. The atonement for iniquity will know its fullest expression. Everlasting righteousness will come in. The presence of Christ will be put an end to any vision and prophecy. And the most holy place will be anointed when Christ comes for a second time. Now, I just want to make mention of this. This is precisely also what is anticipated in the prophets. It's precisely what is anticipated in the prophets. Now, there's many places. Let me just go take you to one. This is what he said, Ezekiel 38. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes. They will live in the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, your fathers lived on. They will live on it, they and their sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant with them. I'll place and multiply them, set my sanctuary in their midst forever, and my dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst together. This fits precisely with what is anticipated after his return in Revelation and many other places. What's going to happen? He's going to return. He's going to put an end to the deception of Satan. The kingdom of the Antichrist is going to be destroyed. And then he says this, and then I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, so forth, came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that's the pattern. That's the consistent pattern in scripture and it's laid out in detail here. So what events then are we waiting for? We're waiting for one to arise on the world scene who will have political prominence and power. He will have a facade of peace. In this facade of peace, he will make a covenant with Israel in which Israel is allowed again to have sacrifices and build a temple. It will be a covenant of deception in the middle of that. He will come to the height of blasphemy against God. He will demand worship by all of the world. He will desecrate in every way the temple of God and he will be allowed to continue this for three and a half years, at the end of which Christ will return bodily from heaven in the glory of his Father and all of the holy angels to destroy all that stands in rebellion with him and establish a kingdom that was promised to Israel for 1,000 years. That's how we see it. And that, again, is the consistent pattern. Now, what is the point for us? Well, again, just as we come into the Lord's table here, it's one thing to know that, but what is the point to know that? Well, as with all of God's word and the prophetic word, it is to remind us that God is on his throne. We want to hear that again and again. God has revealed things to us to give us a framework of how to view the world, to have a biblical world view, to understand the world that is through Scripture, through what he has revealed, through what he's doing in Christ, what he's doing for his own glory. And so we look... And regardless of the rantings and the blasphemies and the so-called or the seeming power of men, it's, it's nothing. God will bring all to account. He's in absolute control. And here's the one promise in the midst of all of that that we live in. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He is building his church. He is doing his work. Two, Jesus tells us that we are to discern the times, not to be preoccupied with the mysterious and the fantastical, but... To discern the times for this so that we would live soberly, realizing that this world is temporary, it's passing away, the glory of the nations is like a fading flower, and to not get lost in those things, but to live in light of the kingdom that is coming, and that he is establishing, and to learn and to live for the rewards of that kingdom, not the rewards of this world. And so then, these truths then should shape our affections. And our purposes, our goals, our objectives in life, to live for things that are eternal. Two, in the words of Paul, always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. And so with that, let's go to the Lord's table and prepare to remember his death and his resurrection for us. To remember this kingdom that is coming and to have our hearts encouraged by faith. Let me pray, and as the men come forward, and then they'll pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for your word. There are many things to ponder and to grab our attention for us to consider and to think about. But Lord, we know that as we do that, we have the assurance that you have revealed yourself to us and your purposes to be understood, not to be confusing, to clarify, not to... Make foggy. And so we can know that as we come to your word, we have from you the very things you want us to know that so that we could live wisely and godly in this present age. So that we could live with hope. So that we could live with anticipation and the certainty of being with you, our Lord, again. And how our hearts long for that. Word, in your word, Reminds us and helps us to not be overly discouraged or dismayed when we see the chaos of a world under sin around us, and at the same time, not to be overly complacent when it seems that all is well, but to remember that you are working out a plan that is going to be completed when you return and only when you return. Keep our hope firmly fixed on this reality and this truth and even remind and strengthen and encourage our hearts as we consider these truths and the symbols of your table. And to that end, O Lord, we pray.